0: Much more recently, historians have begun to explore other aspects of the Bolivian National Revolution, let's say beyond these classic themes that had been at the center of the discussion in the past. The book of historian Tasha Kimball is a good example of this. Kimball analyzes the policies of abortion and reproductive rights in Bolivia from the mid-20th century to the present. This book is focused primarily on the cities of La Paz and El Alto. The book has a suggestive title, An Open Secret, The History of Unwanted Pregnancy and Abortion in Modern Bolivia, and discusses the complex relationship of Bolivian nationalist, military, neoliberal, left-wing governments with women's reproductive rights. It also discusses the complex relationship of Bolivian citizens to the question of abortion. Tasha, thank you so much for coming to the program. I would like to hear a little bit more about your book first.
1: Sure, Um, thank you so much for having me, Carmen. So just to clarify, if folks are looking at my book, um, my name on the book cover itself is Natalie Kimball, but I do go by Tasha. And my book focuses on women's experiences with unwanted pregnancy and abortion in the two cities of La Paz and El Alto. And it begins in sort of the early 1950s, so around the time of the national revolution, and it ends around 2010. And the book, in terms of the source material, draws on uh, about 113 interviews, oral interviews that I conducted when I was living in Bolivia, Um, The research for the project was done between 2009 and 2010. And um, those interviews are with, about half of them are with women who had experienced unwanted pregnancies or abortions, um, and the rest are with a number of kind of different citizen and uh, official groups who had had some connection with reproductive rights. So I talked to medical personnel, including some doctors who performed abortions, um, other medical personnel like uh, nurses and psychologists, also Um, activists on both sides of the debate over abortion's legal status. I spoke with police officers about policing abortion and government officials. And so I I kind of discussed, I tried to reach a broad swath of society. And um, the book argues that women's experiences with unwanted pregnancy and abortion Uh, were and continue to be important. And that's primarily because, well, not only did they influence the trajectory of changing policies and services in reproductive health, but they sort of reveal, when you look at them, this ambivalent attitude that society has about not only abortion, but also sexuality, women, and their changing roles in society, and then finally, you know, women's experiences with these things are important just because they happen, you know, it, more than half it's estimated of women in, in Bolivia will have an abortion sometime in their lifetime. And not only women, of course, right here, we're talking about people who have uteruses and there are often issues of life and death, particularly in places where abortion is uh, illegal because it's unregulated. So that's sort of a, an overview of the book.
0: Thank you. And um, so... I would like to focus now a little bit more on the 50s now, and I wonder if you can tell us how the MNR, how this Bolivian nationalist approached the question of women and reproductive rights in the 50s? Sure,
1: yeah. So this concept of reproductive rights, first of all, definitely did not yet exist in Bolivia in the 1950s. So women were viewed primarily by the nationalist revolutionary government in terms of their roles as mothers. And these male Bolivian revolutionaries were primarily concerned with growing this healthy, robust population that would help the state to modernize. So they they were very pro-natalist, which means that they supported growing the population, and they looked down on the use of abortion or any contraceptive methods. Um, and they were also fairly racist, it must be said. Um, they, were, they thought that Indigenous mothers in particular needed to have their mothering practices reformed in order to help make the state modern. And reforming of mothering practices basically made meant making those practices more modern. And, you know, the Bolivian Revolution did important things for women. It granted the vote for women. It allowed them to run for office. Um, And then women on their own during those years, of course, uh, both Mestiza, white, and indigenous women were participating in political activism. Um, But many of the testimonies that we do have kind of show that when women were involved in movements that included men, they were often cast in these supporting roles, and they were not taken super seriously as leaders.
0: At the same time, one of the things that I was curious about your book, one of the things that I that, that I found it very interesting was that it was precisely in the moment of this mobilization that the so-called Barzolas, this political group that was operating under the wing of the MNR, ended up kind of working in areas that probably men were not even thinking about, such as health or education or women or women political participation. So. I I I see what you're saying. That like they were definitely not promoting wi- women's, but at the same time, probably women were doing that work for themselves.
1: Absolutely, and I think that the atmosphere of the Bolivian nationalist revolution probably contributed to a growth of women's activism in those years, and not just the Barzolas, but some of the other all kinds of groups and collectives of women that were mobilizing on their own for things that mattered to them. Um, Food, you know, food assistance and getting, uh, having things like soup kitchens or um, childcare when they were uh, for, for folks who were working. And a lot of these, obviously, working class mothers were working. Um, So there were all kinds of um, activities that were happening that I think you know, the atmosphere of the revolution certainly supported, but I wouldn't go as far to say that that was something that was always encouraged or promoted necessarily by the MNR itself.
0: So today, abortion is still illegal in Bolivia. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what were the legacies of this pro natalist of this revolutionary rhetoric in framing or shaping the debate today? Sure. I think that um, motherhood seems
1: to continue to be very important, both to the state and societies of assessment, assessments of women and of their worth and contribution to Bolivian society. And I noticed when I was doing interviews for the book that there's a lot of resistance to women's changing roles, particularly their kind of pursuit of career's rather than family, maybe a delayed age at which they're having children, some women, not all women. Um, And that's a resistance that we've seen, not just in Bolivia, of course, but in a lot of places where women's roles have been changing. Um, uh, One one of the um, focuses of my book was on social attitudes, changing social attitudes toward women, abortion, unwanted pregnancy, sex. And I noticed that a lot of individuals tend to blame a range of different types of social problems like teen pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy, and even alcoholism on the fact that women have become more career oriented. So it's this idea that women are now working outside the house in addition to men. And so their teenage children are left unsupervised and they are, those teenage children are getting involved in things that they otherwise maybe wouldn't. Um, Other people also point to things like a general sort of loss of values or changing attitudes towards Catholicism um, that may be influencing some of these issues. And as you mentioned, you know, abortion remains illegal and widely stigmatized. And even contraceptive methods continue to be somewhat stigmatized to a certain degree. This, although I think has changed more than attitudes toward abortion. And I think part of the issue in, in Bolivia is that Um, is what everybody refers to as machismo, right? Like sexism, because there are some attitudes, like for instance, some men feel that they don't, they oppose their female partner's use of contraceptive methods because they think that that allows them to sleep around without fearing pregnancy. So there's these sort of attitudes that women who prepare for sex by using contraceptive methods are more promiscuous or are more loose. So we definitely see a a legacy with respect to that. Although I would say, you know, there, there there've been major changes, the government administrations are no longer pronatalist, and at least there's national healthcare programs that do support uh, contraception that that allow women to access that free of charge. And there's more services available than there were in the fifties, certainly.
0: Another aspect that I, I found really interesting in your book was, um, while probably uh, in other works about the revolution of Bolivia or, more, or the history of Bolivia, we see a lot of the, the differences or the ideological clashes between the church, the left, indigenous, the nationalists or the military. Probably one of the things that I see in your book is the confluence of all of them in how, how they were approaching women, reproductive rights or abortion, it's the, the, the simili- Similarity of how this allegedly very different groups are looking at the question of women.
1: I think that's true to a certain extent. Of course, you know, one of the major shifts that we see in the 50s and 60s from the revolutionary period to the military period is in the 70s, there's much more of a concern globally with overpopulation mm-hmm. rather than underpopulation. Mm-hmm. So there's still even today, or even at least 10 years ago, when I was doing my research in Bolivia, there are some individuals who claim to oppose contraception because they they want to grow a healthy, robust population. They think that that's essential to national progress and economic development. Um, but most people no longer have those views. And the military regime was, you know, they did float and attempt some programs in contraceptive methods. It's hard to tell how much of that initiative was theirs and how much of the initiative was coming from outside agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, because USAID was involved in some of those initiatives um, because of concerns about overpopulation, which Mm -hmm. also need to be viewed in the lens of this sort of eugenicist view that You know, if we have too many people who are poor and often people of color, like indigenous people, then they are going to be more, uh, it's going to increase poverty and those populations are going to become susceptible to communist agitation because we're still in the Cold War in that period. But in terms of, you know, viewing women primarily as, as mothers, I think that that. That is something that we see um, continually, and there can be some opposition to contraceptive methods for different reasons, but I do see what you're saying of there is some opposition on the part of leftists and indigenistas because of these sort of fears of eugenicist interventionism Or, you know, on the part of the military, they eventually backed away from the notion of contraceptive methods because, partly because of their relationship with the church. So, you know, there are subtle shifts, but in some respects, there are continuities as well.
0: In the website, you posted a medical record from the La Paz Obstetric Facility. And I want to talk a little bit about the source. First, where did you find it? Uh, I don't think I have seen many historians working with these sources. So I was wondering, are you one of the first historians working with these medical records? And if you could talk a little bit more also, why do you think this source is relevant, especially for those students that are probably interested in Bolivia and on on the question of reproductive rights and questions of abortion?
1: This source to me is super fascinating, and it's one of thousands and thousands of medical records that exist. This particular one I found at the Archivo Historico La Paz, um, which is, you know, one of the main historical archives in La Paz. And it's part of a large collection of medical records from this one obstetrical institute. It's called the Instituto de Maternidad Natalio A. Aramayo. And this was an obstetrical institute that operated in La Paz between 1955. So it was opened under sort of the, um, you know, direction and interest of the MNR. It's part of their interest in public health. And so it opened in 1955 and operated until 1994. And at that point, it joined with the gynecological department of the Miraflores Hospital. And it became what is today the Hospital de la Mujer, which is still operating. So when I was looking at medical records for this book, all of the records from 1955 to 1983 are housed at the Archivo Historico La Paz. And then there are some records from 83 up until the present essentially because they continue to see patients that are at Hospital de la Mujer. But some of those are in bound volumes and some of them, they are actually sitting in the stacks of like current patients being seen. Um, So I would go back and forth from the archive to the hospital to look at these, these sources. And there's a good gap, honestly, there's from about 1984 to 1995, there's not much, who knows where those materials went. I may be one of, I'm the only historian that I know of that has worked in depth with these particular sources. I know that Nicole Pacino does make reference to some of them in her works on Campesina motherhood. And um, there's also been, so several years ago, there was a book by Ann Zulowski, a great book called Unequal Cures. And she cites sources um, on women um, that include gynecological and obstetrical information from a hospital that she refers to called Hospital General. And I'm not sure what, like how that hospital changed over time. It may be the current Hospital de Clínicas, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where she accessed those records. Um, And in terms of its relevance, you know, the medical records, I'm so grateful essentially for my training as a historian, because you look at this source and you're like, okay, so there's some There's a lot of random information. How do I put this in context? But it's, it has, it's amazing the wealth of information that these sources have, right? Because what each source is doing is essentially, it, the purpose of it is to document a medical visit from a woman. Most of the women who are repre- represented in these sources are coming to give birth. That's usually why they're at the obstetrical institute. However, the medical personnel are collecting all this other information. They're collecting information, first of all, the demographics, right? So we know how old she was, her occupation, what city she was from, where she lived, whether she was single or married or concubina, which just means like cohabitating. In some years of these sources, they also collect um, ethnic ethnic information and religious affiliation. Um, and then they have all this information on their past pregnancies. So you can see in the the source, um, all we know is that she had something they're calling an aborto, which could have been a a provoked abortion, what we think of in English as an abortion, or it could have been a miscarriage that had, was spontaneous or a result of an a- accident or something. And it says that she had that, you know, in 1959 at seven months in the pregnancy and the treatment or the complication, that's kind of what it says above the um, notation of what the treatment was, was which just means uh, like a, a curatage dilation and curatage. So mm. As I mentioned in the paragraph that I sent you, that maybe appears on the website, like we don't know for sure whether that was an abortion or a miscarriage. But you know, they there are sources that have all of this past pregnancy information. And in many cases, it'll also tell you who assisted her in that process. So it'll wow. refer to midwives, it'll refer to nurses or doctors or even um, other types of healthcare providers like um curanderos like traditional medical or traditional Andean providers or, um, um, or uh, which are sort of imp- empiricists, also traditional medical providers. They're trying to differentiate those that are fall under Western medical care training and Andean training. So you learn so much about their pregnancy histories. And then all of these things that I mentioned at the end, like information about their parents and how they died, or uh, if they're still healthy and alive, what medical conditions they've suffered, um, what types of daily habits they have. Sometimes they'll Right there, there are additional sheets in these medical records that sometimes will have detailed information about the child's father, too, um, what occupation they had, um, whether they're living in poverty, how many children they have. So you just get so much info. And then occasionally you also get these sort of comments on the part of the medical personnel about the woman or about her pregnancy. So I've run into sources that I describe in the book where it'll say, this woman claims she had an accidental miscarriage. It doesn't appear to be that way, where you sort of can read between the lines and assess, oh, they think this is a provoked abortion. Or they'll say, they'll include, this woman says that she was taking um, certain teas that are known to provoke abortion. So you get all this information about the types of medical techniques and remedies that women are using to sort of regulate their own fertility during the years. So it's really fascinating and has a lot of opportunities for people to do research with them.
0: Tasha, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And I hope this short interview is going to be an invite for everyone else to read your book. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.